before our prayer, uh, just a word, a comment about the gospel reading for this morning, which is also our sermon text. You'll, you'll notice that the master in verse... In verse 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. It seems like a cruel sentence to punish the family for the sin of the man, the husband and the father. And it certainly is. Uh, However, I think it conveys a truth that is worth remembering and a truth that is in force today. And that is when the head of the house, or whether it's the mother or the father, messes up, there are consequences for the entire household. The household is a unit, and it was seen that way in the ancient world. And so when one member of the family fails in a significant way, the family's a system. Every part of the family is affected for good or for ill. That's the way it was in the past, and it remains so today. Whole households suffer because of the incompetence or the mistakes of the few. We bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So last Sunday, as well as today and next Sunday, uh, the subject is uh, stewardship of God's resources. Now that includes God's money, and it also includes managing those things that are more important than money. Stewardship involves managing God's mercy or God's grace. And Roman numeral one in your sermon outline, page 11 in your bulletin, a little background to the gospel reading Sin is the refusal to give what one owes. Sin is a refusal to pay what you owe. In verse 30, the wicked servant refuses to give his fellow servant the forgiveness that he owes him. In light of all the forgiveness he himself had received freely, he should have shared that with his neighbor, but he refused to pay what he owed or to give what he owed. And it is a truth, my friends, that we enter this world owing a lot to many. St. Paul wrote in Romans 13, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And the fourth commandment, Honor your father and your mother. Now, Luther explains it this way. We're to love all people, but we're to honor our parents. Honor includes love, but it goes much further. We honor parents when we treat them as God's representatives. And you don't talk back to God's representatives. You respect them. Because when you respect God's representatives, you respect God himself, the God who sent them and gave them to you. 
Paul writes in Ephesians, wives submit to your husbands. Elsewhere he writes, respect your husbands. Paul also writes, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. These are things that we owe one another. And when we fail to give others what is their due, we sin. Sin is a debt that we owe. It's an obligation we have to one another that all too often we fail to meet. So, letter B, to forgive is to release someone. That's what the word forgive means in the Greek. It means to to release someone, to set them free, to unbind them from what is binding them. It's to release someone from the retribution and the retaliation, the consequences that they deserve. Verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's what forgiveness is. It's a release to those who are bound by something, namely sin. Letter C, the immediate context of our gospel reading would be the verses immediately preceding Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault just between you and him. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, that's the context of today's gospel reading. It has to do with personal offenses. Offenses committed against you. And how do you deal with that? Roman numeral two. What limits should we place on love or on forgiveness? Paul writes in Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others fulfills the law. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love, St. Paul writes, love does not seek its own. It does not seek its own well-being. It seeks the well-being of the other. It always does. And so the question then becomes, can you ever love too much? The answer is no. Can you ever forgive too much? The answer is no. I must never withhold my forgiveness from another. Letter A. The rabbis, the ancient rabbis said, you should forgive your offender up to three times. After that, no more. Three times. Peter probably thought he was being pretty generous. He would forgive perhaps up to seven times. Letter C, for Jesus, it is unlimited forgiveness. You stop counting. You forgive and keep on forgiving. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, meaning without limit. And when we hear those words without limit, immediately we object in our heads and and we think, well, there must be a limit. What about people who deliberately offend others, who deliberately abuse others, and they refuse to repent? What about them? Well, my friends, when someone continues to offend, 
and refuses to repent, we must love them enough to warn them that God is withholding his forgiveness from them. Their sins remain bound to them for as long as they refuse to repent. And if they refuse to repent, eventually they will have to answer to God for their sins. That's the word of warning we must speak to those individuals. But my own forgiveness, I must never withhold from them. I must forgive without limit because that's the way God is toward me and toward you. So Roman numeral three, why? Why must I forgive without limit? Well, God forgives me without limit. And letter A, our debts are so immense that they are humanly unpayable. They're humanly unpayable. They're beyond the scope of our ability to pay. 10,000 talents is the debt of the wicked servant in our gospel reading. And 10,000 talents is far more than any Roman province owed in taxes. Far more than anyone could repay. It's estimated, one estimate is that this is well over a billion dollars. Another estimate was it was something like $10 billion. If you believed in purgatory, you could be in purgatory for thousands of years and still never pay off that debt. That impossibly high, unpayable number represents the magnitude of my sinfulness toward God, and it represents the magnitude of your own sinfulness toward God as well. Letter B, the good news is God's heart is moved by our need. Verse 27, and out of pity, the word there in the Greek is compassion, out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, we've talked about compassion before. It's that tug at the heart you feel when you see someone who's helpless or an animal that's helpless. It's that tug at the heart. And my friends, God is that way toward you and toward me. God's heart is moved by your need and by my own. That's why he came to us in the person of his son to pay all of our unpayable debts. Roman numeral four. The parable teaches the responsibility of the forgiven. The responsibility of the forgiven. Verse 33. Letter A. Brotherly love is not the cause of salvation, but it should be the consequence of it or the result of it. St. Paul writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And now here's the point. He goes on to say, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us, to do. That's the expectation. That's what God is looking for by saving you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him and say, 
pay what you owe. Now, now notice, he finds a fellow servant, someone who's like him, someone who is in debt, like himself. Even common sense says he should be able to sympathize with someone like himself. That's how you and I are wired. The more we have in common with others, the more tolerant we are of them, the more forgiving, the more understanding we are, because we have much in common. But that's not how this guy is. The forgiveness he's been given has made absolutely no impact on him at all. And the point of the parable is this. We Christians become the wicked servant when we refuse to forgive our neighbor. When we refuse to forgive, it is proof that God's forgiveness of us has made no impact on us whatsoever. It hasn't changed us at all, which it should. My friends, if that describes your condition today, that is not a condition you want to remain in. Because if you remain in that condition, you will receive no mercy from God, only judgment. Point number one, the less we appreciate God's forgiveness, the less we will forgive. It's so true. The wicked servant is exhibit A. He has no appreciation for the forgiveness he's been given and he lives like it. Number two, the threat of judgment reminds us of our continual need for mercy. That's what keeps us humble. That's what keeps us merciful toward our fellow servants. We need mercy every day. God behaves toward his people the way his people behave toward others. That's God's discipline. That's his discipline. We should live with the constant knowledge of our own need of forgiveness. That's how we become the forgiving people God intends us to be. And let her be. We are managers, we're managers or stewards of God's mercy. We're, we're managers of his money. We're managers of his resources. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul makes crystal clear that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, apart from works. But he goes on to say, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved apart from our good works, but we've been saved to do good works. God's gift of salvation in Christ does not negate human responsibility. It demands it. We are stewards not only of God's money, but of God's mercy as well. So Roman numeral five, the practicalities of forgiveness. My friends, if you struggle with forgiving your offender, letter A, first of all, face your pain. Often those who suffer a serious offense deny that they're hurting. They say, I'm fine, I'm okay. Maybe they are, but in most cases they're not. Acknowledging your hurt 
is the first step in healing the hurt. That's why our Lord Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. They will receive comfort. You don't receive the comfort by making an end run around the grieving, around the mourning. You must pass through it. God's comfort comes to those who acknowledge their hurts, not those who deny them. And it may help to write them down, to make a list of specific things that others have done or said that's harmed you. Take a few moments to grieve over those losses, over those hurts. The sooner you do that, the sooner you can turn a corner emotionally and move on with your life. So, letter B, understand the truth. See yourself as your offender. If you have trouble forgiving your offender, remember, the more we have in common with someone, the more tolerant we are of them, the more forgiving we are, the more understanding we tend to be. And for that reason, Scripture reminds us, Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And Paul writes in Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. It's good to remember that your offender is a fellow servant like you. Your offender is just as lost as you are right now or as lost as you have been in the past. Your offender is just as powerless to save himself as you are powerless to save yourself. In fact, the only difference between you and your offender is the amounts both of you owe. Your offender owes you 100 denarii. Now that is not a small sum. That too is a serious debt, and it should never have been incurred. But it's nothing compared to what you owe God. 10,000 talents. And God forgives you all of that. God loves you so much that he will not let 10,000 talents come between you and himself. You have been forgiven what you could never repay. Believing that, you and I will gladly forgive our fellow servants. And then let her see. Verbalize your choice to forgive or write it down. If you postpone forgiveness until you feel like forgiving, you may never forgive. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it is a choice. It is a decision you make which often contradicts the feelings you have. Feelings are not the cause of forgiveness, they never are. Feelings are the result. The feelings come later. Verbalize your forgiveness to your offender. That seals or confirms the decision you've made. It makes it public, at least between the two of you. And if you've made a list of the offenses committed against you and under Part A, destroy it, burn it up or tear it up and throw it away as an exercise of your decision to forgive. And if your offender is dead or otherwise unavailable, maybe you don't know where they reside, write a letter to your offender the letter's not to be mailed. Briefly describing how you were hurt 
and focusing on your decision to forgive him or her as you have already been forgiven in Christ. Write the letter. Document your decision to forgive. Formalize it in that way. Forgive as you have been forgiven in Christ. When you do, you put the past behind you and you move forward as a steward of God's grace and as a faithful manager of his mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, amen.